We've seen that the Gospel of Mark can be divided into roughly three major portions of text. In, in the first eight chapters, you have this question that Mark is seeking to answer by showing us the person and work of Christ, namely his miracles. And the question that he's seeking to answer is, who is Jesus? And he shows us Jesus is the Son of God. And that comes down to chapter 8 then. and In the middle of chapter 8, we see Jesus begins to tell his disciples because they recognize who he is, he begins to tell them why he's come. And he wants them to know he has come not to rule and reign on this earth at this time, but to die and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we're going to see today that wasn't a ransom to the evil one for our sin. That was a ransom paid to God for his wrath that was due us. Well, Mark chapter 11 begins with a triumphal entry of Christ where we see this king who is the son of God, who is on a mission to give his life as a ransom for many, now enters into the holy city, Jerusalem, just like was predicted by the prophet Zechariah. And he has come and he is hailed by many as Israel's king only to find that a few days later, Jesus is rejected. Jesus is rejected by those who hate him. He is put on the cross. And everything we've seen from Jesus' betrayal and arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane to his unjust condemnation to his humiliation by the scourging and the cross, all of this would suggest to the ordinary reader that Jesus has been defeated. And that's sort of where we were left off in our text last week. But this morning's text is going to indicate that this idea that Jesus has been defeated could not be farther from the truth. So please stand for the reading of God's word. Let's read our text together. Mark chapter 15, verses 33 through 39. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they began saying, Behold, he is calling for Elijah. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink, saying, Let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. When the centurion who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. That's the reading of God's inerrant, infallible word. You may be seated. Let's ask the Spirit of God to teach us this morning from his truth. Almighty God and Father, we approach your throne in desperate need. We confess our inability to see what we need to see out of your word. We ask with the psalmist that you would open our eyes to behold wondrous things out of your word, specifically related to this king of beauty that we just sang about. God, we need to see Christ lifted up in all his glory. 
We need to understand the significance of the cross and what it means for our lives. We ask that you would remove distractions. We pray against the temptations and power of the evil one. We pray that there would be a triumph, a victory here in this place. And that every single soul that is here would be attentive to the word of God. And that you would arrest them by the power of your spirit to hear and to respond in precisely the way you intend. May Jesus the lamb that was slain, be honored and glorified through this preaching of your holy word. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the earliest depictions of Christ that we have, perhaps the earliest in antiquity, dates to around AD 200, potentially as early as the first century, and it's a carving, actually a work of graffiti, It's been etched into a home in the heart of ancient Rome. It's called the Alexamenos Graffito. This carving depicts a man on a cross with a donkey's head. And beneath him stands another man showing worship with uplifted hands. And in an inscription below, etched in Greek, reads, Alexamenos Sebete Theon, which roughly translates to Alexamenos worships his God. This earliest portrait of Christ on the cross that we have in history was apparently intended to mock a Christian for his devotion to a crucified king. I mean, do you know any God who was put on a cross? You won't find any other in history. And this is how pathetic the crucified God appeared to many non-believers. It's the foolishness of the cross. And so how ironic it is that the same image of God hanging on a cross between two criminals, two sinners, is now arguably the most iconic image in all of human history. You see, within a few centuries, this God on the cross, Jesus, Jesus the Christ, which many Romans mocked as a fool and a failure, would become the most revered name in all the Roman Empire, surpassing even that of Caesar. Whatever you think of Jesus, you can't deny that he is now the centerpiece of the greatest artistic masterpieces of history, more than anyone else in history. He is the inspiration of more songs and musical works than any other human being in history, Jesus Christ. He is the subject of more books and literary works than any other figure in the world. No one else even comes close. And this is only one way in which we see illustrated the triumph, the triumph of the crucified king. Now that expression itself is sort of a contradiction in terms. Because in Mark's day, to talk of the triumph of one who was crucified was something like to speak of dry water. It was a contradiction in terms. It is what we call an oxymoron. For one thing, no king could be put on a cross, let alone a king who came from heaven. The king who claims to be the creator of the world on a cross? And crucifixion is not a triumph. In Mark's time, this was the lowest humiliation possible. But what Mark's going to show us today is that he's going to challenge all that. What he's about to share is this eyewitness testimony that would completely shake the world and turn it upside down. 
From last week's text, we focus more on the physical, psychological aspect of Jesus' suffering, but today's text is going to bring us to focus more on the spiritual aspect to Jesus' suffering and what he accomplished in it. Last week, we saw the humiliation of the cross, and we left off our study last week with Jesus being surrounded at the cross with many hurling abuse and insults at him and mocking him as a failure proclaiming his defeat, as it were. Today, we're going to see the triumph of the cross. And we're going to see Jesus' triumph proclaimed from the cross. Mark wants you to realize, Jesus triumphed at the cross. Jesus triumphed at the cross, and our text is going to show us two ways that Jesus triumphed at the cross. First, How did Jesus triumph at the cross? First, we see in verses 33 through 36, Jesus satisfied sin's penalty. Jesus satisfied sin's penalty. That's how he triumphed. The fact that Jesus was here satisfying sin's penalty can be witnessed from two dark realities, which are going to be followed by a dark reaction. So the first dark reality here is in verse 33. The sun, S-U-N, is darkened. Verse 33 says, when the sixth hour came, that's about noon by the Jewish reckoning, when the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now that is very unusual because this is approximately the time when the sun is highest in the sky. What's going on here? Something extraordinary is happening, Mark wants you to know. The fact that this was Passover means that the moon was full. This was a full moon which would indicate to us that it's not possible, by natural explanation, that that you could have a solar eclipse. The moon was not in any position for that. This cannot be simply explained by a solar eclipse. This most unusual darkness was perhaps created by a sudden blanket of clouds over the cross. Mark says it fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. And whatever this darkness was, I want to draw your attention to the fact that it was significant. Because darkness in Scripture is symbolic of God's judgment. Even back in the book of Exodus, we see when God poured out his plagues upon Egypt, the plague to proceed, the final and worst, was darkness. Darkness. Symbolic of God's judgment. Throughout the Bible, you'll see this expression, the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord. What is that? That is a period of time when God is going to pour out his judgment on the earth. And it is a day consistently characterized in scripture as a day of darkness. Listen to Amos 8, 9. It says of this time, it will come about in that day, declares the Lord God, that I will make the sun go down at noon. And I will make the earth dark in broad daylight. That's a sign of judgment. You see, the Hebrew scriptures clearly indicate that the supernatural darkening of the sun, that was an omen of God's serious judgment. And Jesus would describe hell as a place of outer darkness. Yes, that's what hell is. Hell is a place where sinners experience the wrath of God. God is merciful, God is loving, but God is holy and God is just. And hell is a place of darkness because it is a place where sinners experience the judgment of God. I know that's not popular, but that is biblical. That is what God has revealed in his word, and truth is never up for a vote. This darkness 
that we see in our text in Mark 15 signals that God's judgment has come. But it was not a judgment that has come because of the injustice that Jesus is simply experiencing. It's not a judgment that is hovering over the cross and over the land because of all those hurling abuse at Christ and because of all the tortures being inflicted upon Christ. No, this darkness has come for Jesus. The darkness that we witness in Mark 15, the darkening of the sun, is symbolic of God's judgment upon Jesus. The Father is judging the Son. As we sung just a moment ago, every evil thought, every evil deed here is now laid on Christ. But the fact that Jesus satisfied sin's penalty is further evident from a second dark reality. Look at verse 34. We see the sun, S-O-N, is deserted. The sun, S-U-N, is darkened. The sun, S-O-N, is deserted. Verse 34, at the ninth hour, that's about 3 p.m. now, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The timing of Jesus' cry was significant. Mark tells us it was at the ninth hour, three in the afternoon. That's when Jesus cries with this voice. Why is that significant? According to the Judean way of reckoning time, we've said already, it was at this very time of day, at 3 p.m. on Friday, that Jews from Jerusalem would be slaying their Passover lambs in preparation for the Passover that evening. Blood was now flowing from the temple altar. And the Jews were doing what they had been commanded to do ever since Exodus chapter 12, to slay the lamb in commemoration of the Passover. But this was also prophetic. Because here, just outside the city walls, blood is also flowing down, but it's flowing down from another altar. That is the altar of the cross. And it is on that altar that the Son of God is being offered as a sacrifice. As the Passover lamb, don't miss it, as the lamb of God that is being slain so that when God sees his blood, he will pass over you. You who believe, you who apply the blood to your life. 1 Corinthians 5.7 tells us Christ our Passover, Christ our Passover lamb is sacrificed for us. He has been sacrificed for us. He was sacrificed precisely when Jews from Jerusalem were sacrificing their Passover lambs. And that is no coincidence. That is because everything that we are reading happens according to God's sovereign plan. It happened exactly when God wanted it to, the way God wanted it to happen. The timing was significant, of course. The words of Jesus' cry were also significant. Mark gives us the actual Aramaic words which Jesus spoke. And then he translates it for his Gentile audience. Jesus takes these words here directly from Psalm 22. They were words originally penned by the psalmist David. David was a king. David was perhaps Israel's greatest king. And David wrote this psalm, Psalm 22, when he was suffering as a king. And yet he felt at this time in his life that God had abandoned him. Ever been there? Well, In Mark 15, 34, we see another king. He is the son of David. 
He is the greater son of David. He is the, the one that David was looking to, the everlasting king who would come, and yet that king, that son of David, is on a cross. And now he, nailed to a cross, is crying out because God has literally, not metaphorically, not poetically, but has literally forsaken him. Jesus cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that is the eternal question, isn't it? Why? Why would God forsake God? What exactly is happening here on the cross? The humanitarian and and scholar Albert Schweitzer once claimed that Jesus was essentially a false prophet. He mistakenly believed that he was the Christ and and so he offers himself to go to the cross so as to force God's hand. And he believed that by doing this, offering himself as a sacrifice, God's going to suddenly bring in the kingdom. And at this time on the cross, according to Schweitzer's view, Jesus suddenly is disillusioned and realized that God has abandoned him. And God isn't going to show up as he's left to die on the cross. Well, that view obviously ignores everything the Old Testament has to say about the Messiah, It obviously ignores everything the New Testament has to say about the Messiah. It ignores everything that Mark has shown us to this point about Jesus' claims and miracles. It does not take seriously Mark's central thesis. Jesus is the Son of God. No, Jesus was not here disillusioned. He knew this hour was coming. He predicted this hour was coming. That is the whole reason for his agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. Another theory of what's happening on the cross is the idea that Jesus is suffering as the ultimate example of moral love. He sets the ultimate example of selfless love for humanity. And scripture does claim that there's no greater love than this. In this God demonstrates his love. You will find no truer expression of perfect love than in Jesus. This is where you see perfect love and mercy meet. But that's Not to say then the cross was only a moral example. To say the cross was only a moral example, how would that explain that Jesus is forsaken by God? How would that explain scriptures like 2 Corinthians 5.21 that teaches the Father made the sinless Son to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him? Clearly, something far grander is happening than simply a moral example being shown. The true biblical understanding here is that on the cross, Jesus was forsaken by God because at this moment, he was bearing in his body our sins. He is our sin bearer. Just read the Old Testament and that expression will make so much sense. Jesus is the fulfillment of every sin and guilt offering. All of it. It points to Jesus Christ. Jesus is bearing our sin and therefore he is being punished for the penalty of our sins in our place. You see, the cross demonstrates God's love, the fact that he was willing to give his son for us, the fact that the son was willing to die for us. John 3.16, Romans 5.8, that is very clear. But the cross also shows us the holiness and righteousness of God. God is holy. His holiness means he is set apart. He must separate from sin. 
Habakkuk 1.13 says, God is so holy, he cannot even look on evil. He hates evil. And this is why the father, at this time, forsakes the son. Not because he wants to, but because he must. Because at this time, Jesus is bearing our sin. He became sin for us, for you. Peter explains in 1 Peter 2.24 that Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Now, why couldn't God just forgive our sin without all this? Why couldn't he just write you a certificate of forgiveness without Jesus having to go to the cross? That's been asked before. The answer is very simple from the Bible. Because God is just. And his justice demands that your sin be judged. We understand this on a human level. That our sin, our crimes demand a punishment. Imagine someone who has murdered a friend or family of, member of yours, somebody close to you. That person is caught, they're arraigned in court. You testify against them as an eyewitness. And the jury finds them guilty of first-degree murder. Well, then imagine that in the course of the trial, as the judge gives the sentence, this convicted murderer, guilty, says to the judge, but I'm sorry for what I've done. Well, what if the judge is a nice guy? Should he let him off? Whether the judge is a nice guy or not has nothing to do with the fact that the judge's responsibility is to uphold the law. And if he's a good judge, he will give justice. And he will say, regardless of how you feel, regardless of the fact you are sorry, regardless of all these other good things you're pointing to right now, that has nothing to do with the fact you have broken the law and you must pay the penalty. That is justice. And justice is a good thing, isn't it? You see, we want justice. We love justice until we're on the wrong side of the law. And then we got a problem with it. Everybody's out in the streets. Social justice. Oh, we love that until we realize we are unjust. We are sinners. We are on the wrong side of the law and God must judge our sin. Otherwise, he's not just. We can't even begin to add up all of the things that we've done, all the sins, the, the crimes we've committed against the law of God. So the next time you're tempted to think that maybe your sin isn't a big deal, look at the cross. The next time, maybe you're tempted to engage in that sinful activity. You know it's wrong, but maybe the, the psychology is, well, you know, I'll just ask forgiveness. God is merciful. Look at the cross. Just look at the cross and see what your sin did to the Son of God. God takes sin seriously because he is holy. He is just. And that's what we're witnessing here. That's why Jesus cries to the Father, but the Father is silent. Don't miss this. Remember in Mark chapter 1, for those of us who were here from the beginning of this study, at Jesus' baptism, as Jesus is baptized in Mark chapter 1, we read that, the heavens are ripped open and a voice cries from heaven, declares from heaven, this is my son, my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And the father approves of the son. But here we see there's no voice from heaven. It's a voice from the cross. The son is crying from the cross to the father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But heaven is silent. The heavens are as brass. Because the father is not pleased with the son. He's angry. And he's angry with his son on account of our sins. 
There's a word in the Bible translated propitiation. That's a big word. I know it's a long word, right? Try to spell that. But the meaning is so much more profound. It means Jesus, as our propitiation, was the sacrifice offered to satisfy God's wrath. That's what we're witnessing here. The fact the sun is darkened and the sun, S-O-N, is deserted might spell defeat. It might seem to give us the idea at this point that Jesus has been defeated. But we must remember Jesus is here satisfying sin's penalty. This is part of his triumph. He's satisfying God's justice. Now, not everyone perceives this. Look at verses 35 and 36. We have a dark reaction here. As the spectators are deluded. Verse 35, when some of the bystanders heard it, they heard the cry of Christ. They began saying, behold, he is calling for Elijah. Jesus was crying out to God in the Aramaic, apparently. And and the words, Eloi, Eloi, my God, evidently sounded similar enough to Elijah's name. So that some standing by apparently mistook Jesus as calling out for Eli. That is to say, Elijah, the prophet. Now, this would be supported by the fact that the Jews had long believed that Elijah was coming and that he would come when Messiah came. This goes all the way back to Malachi chapter 4, verse 5. And they believed that when Elijah came, he would be sent to help those who were unjustly oppressed. And I think if we keep that in mind, we see here this is sort of a joke then. Oh, look, he's crying out for Elijah. As if Elijah, the prophet, is going to come now and bail him out. So verse 36. Someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed, and they gave him to drink, saying, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. Now this sour wine was a cheap beverage, and the fact that they were offering to Jesus here is probably done in jest more than anything else. This would only be consistent with everything else we've seen in this setting, right? There's a lot of sarcasm. There's a lot of blasphemy and slander here. I think that's what's going on. And so in this case, they would be saying, let's just keep them alive. Let's keep them alive, guys. Just long enough, and we'll see if Elijah shows up to help him. So then you might say that there are three kinds of darkness that are present in this text. We have, first of all, in verse 33, this Darkness of God's judgment. It's a darkness that has come upon Jesus. It's symbolized by the darkening of the sun. That's verse 33. Then in verse 34, we see there's the darkness of our sin. And this is the darkness of our sin, which Christ is bearing in his own body. It is the reason for which Jesus Christ to the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But then there's another darkness now in verses 35 and 36. This is the darkness upon sinners' minds. We could say it is the darkness which we do not perceive because it is the darkening of our minds to what God is doing. It's the darkening of the mind to the Son of God and his work on the cross. While Jesus is giving himself as an offering for sin, these men here mock him. As difficult as it may appear to the reader at this point, Jesus' suffering at the cross is actually a triumph. 
Sure, that triumph remains veiled by the darkness and the suffering that our sin brings on him, but Jesus is satisfying sin's penalty. And mark it down, that is a victory, as we will see here more in a moment. But the text reveals a second way Jesus triumphed at the cross. Yes, he satisfied sin's penalty, but secondly, Jesus fulfilled God's plan. Of course, there's overlap here, but this is magnificent how our text brings this out. In verses 37 through 39, we're going to see the fact Jesus fulfilled God's plan is evident in two momentous events, followed by a momentous confession or reaction. First, in verse 37, the first momentous event here is that Jesus' triumph is declared at the cross. Verse 37, Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Victims of crucifixion typically died by asphyxiation. That is, they, they eventually became so worn out, they could no longer lift themselves up by the nails to breathe. And so they expired. So after about six hours on a cross, a man who was crucified was typically devoid of any real strength. That was common. And crucifixion was something that these people had seen before. It's, it's a reality in their world. But suddenly at about 3 p.m. in the afternoon, that is six hours after Jesus has been crucified at 9 a.m. in the morning, Jesus, we're told, utters a loud cry. The Greek is phonane megalene, which is the idea. It was a megaphonic cry. Loud. Jesus is demonstrating remarkable strength here. In John 19.30, we're told what he cried. John tells us Jesus cried, It is finished. Paid in full. Complete. Think about it. Every detail which the Father had willed for Jesus to perform, Jesus did it all down to the last detail. So that Luke tells us, after Jesus cries, It is finished. Luke 23.46, Jesus crying out with a loud voice said, Father, into your hands I Commend my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now those about the cross mocking Jesus, they were mocking him for his inability to come down from the cross. Remember that? Isn't that right? You can't do anything. You can't save yourself. Come down from the cross if you're really God. But while Jesus remained on the cross, we who've been reading Mark's gospel, we've come to this point through the text, in the context, we realize it wasn't the nails that held him there. It was his love for sinners. His devotion to the Father's plan. That's what held Jesus on the cross. Jesus wasn't helpless there. And Jesus would say himself in John 10, nobody takes my life. I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus had that power. No one takes my life from me, Jesus says. I lay it down of my own initiative. John 10, 17 and 18. Jesus doesn't die weak then. He dies strong. His life isn't taken from him. He gives up his life. And that's literally the language. In John 19, we're told he yielded up his spirit. He gave up his life for you. It wasn't taken from him. He laid it down for you. And I would wonder what those of Jesus' enemies were thinking when they suddenly heard him and saw him cry with such incredible strength. We know that it impressed the Roman soldiers watching Jesus. We'll see that in a moment. 
So the fact Jesus fulfilled God's plan, that is declared from the cross. But also we see a second momentous event in verse 38. His triumph, Jesus' triumph, is demonstrated at the cross. Verse 38 says, And the veil of the temple was torn into from top to bottom. Now there were many different veils in the temple. But I think it's noteworthy that Mark He doesn't use the word haran for temple, which was a word descriptive of the general temple structure, but he uses naas, which is a Greek word that that indicated the inner sanctuary. So that I think likely this was the veil that separated the holy place from the holiest of holies. This was the veil that hung between the holy place and the holiest of holies, a veil that symbolized the separation that existed between God and man. Because as we've said before, God was holy, man is not. Men are sinful, God is set apart from sin. So there's a separation there. And the only access which man had to God was through a priest. And that was only, a priest could only enter into the holiest of holies once a year on the day of atonement. He would enter into the holy place and there behind this veil in the holiest of holies was the Ark of the Covenant. And on the Ark of the Covenant was this lid, and on the lid was the mercy seat. And this priest would take the blood of the sacrifice and he would sprinkle it on the mercy seat. Why did he do that? Because this was to make atonement for the sins of the nation. Now, the Bible is very clear, and we should understand, this didn't actually remove the people's sins. So how could anybody be saved? They were saved on credit, we could say. They were saved, the Bible teaches, on the promise of a future payment because God cannot lie. When God says something, he always fulfills it. He can't deny himself. They were saved on a promise of a future payment. We, in this age, who look to Christ and we are saved, we're saved because the payment has been made. They were saved on credit, we're saved on debit. The payment has been made. Well, this this is interesting that if you're reading through the Old Testament or you were in that time before Jesus came, you would be left to wonder, why on earth did God command it to be done this way? Priests going into the holiest of holies, offering blood on the mercy seat. Why is it done that way, Lord? It seems like a riddle. Well, that was because, ultimately, when the Lamb of God came, the Lamb that John the Baptist saw, the Lamb that takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb that is Jesus Christ, His blood would be sprinkled to make atonement for us. And His offering would grant real access to God by removing the veil that stood between God and man. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 20 says, we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus. How can you enter into the presence of God as a sinner? By the blood of Jesus. And he says, by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. Interesting. The author of Hebrews is describing this veil as though it's symbolic of the flesh of Christ. And we know that that, that this veil was torn in two. It was ripped apart. And the imagery here then is that Jesus Christ was ripped apart that you might have access to God. Mark uses the Greek word schizo to describe this curtain being ripped in two. And there's only one other time where this verb occurs. I mentioned this, it was over a year ago now, but in Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 and verse 10 we read, At Jesus' baptism, 
Immediately coming out of the water, Jesus saw the heavens opening and the Spirit of God descending like a dove. Opening. The heavens were opened. That is the word schizo. They were ripped apart. This is something really spectacular. At this moment, heaven is opened, ripped into as if to give approval of Jesus' ministry. But now in Mark 15, the veil of the temple is ripped into as if to give approval to Jesus' work on the cross. Jesus satisfied sin's penalty. Jesus fulfilled the demands of the law for sinners. What is necessary now to enter into the presence of God has been fulfilled. That is amazing. And Mark says, how was it ripped? Top to bottom. This wasn't like a shower curtain, by the way. You couldn't rip this with any amount of strong people. I mean, this is a supernatural act. Mark wants you to realize. Top to bottom. God tore that veil himself. And he did it because Christ opened a way for you to God. And he alone did it. I love how in C.S. Lewis classic allegory, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, he tells how this Aslan, he's the great lion, the one who represents Christ in the allegory, is willing to offer himself. He offers himself as a sacrifice in the place of the traitor Edmund. So the white witch eagerly agrees to the deal. She takes Aslan. She lets Edmund go free. And the great lion The king is brought to a stone table where he's humiliated and he is executed on the stone table. And those who love him look on and mourn. But you know what happens in the morning? Lewis tells us that there was an earthquake and the table, the stone table, split in two. It broke. And what he is describing there by way of allegory is what Mark's telling us. That the death of Jesus on the cross broke the power of sin, broke the power of the curse, opened a way for sinners condemned under the law of God to now have hope, to now have a way to God so that God can be both just and the justifier of those that believe in Christ. Romans 3.26. That is glorious. Everything the law held against you, Colossians 2.14, the Bible says God took that and he nailed it to the cross of Jesus. Do you believe that? All the religions of the world teach, do, 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 Christ says, done. That's the difference. This is the only way of salvation. Christ is the end of the law or the completion of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes, Romans 10.4. He is our access to God and he alone. And this leads us to verse 39 now, which is from a literary standpoint, the climax of Mark's gospel. Verse 39. When the centurion, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. This is a momentous reaction. It is the the fact that Jesus' triumph is declared by his executioner. The centurion was the Roman overseeing Jesus' execution. The the fact he was a centurion means he was a veteran soldier. As his title indicates, he commanded a sentry, that is at least nominally speaking, 100 soldiers. He's no friend or acquaintance of Jesus. This man isn't even a Jew. He's a Gentile. He's a pagan. He likely, in all likelihood, he wasn't a God-fearer. This man is a battle 
hardened, callous to suffering, indifferent to the sight of blood, Roman. But what was it that riveted this Roman to his core? He witnessed Jesus' innocence and Jesus' incredible self-possession. He must have been present and likely even participated in the beating and the mocking that took place in the praetorium that we saw. But he sees Jesus humbly take it all. He witnessed Jesus' love and mercy when after all this beating and when after they've nailed Jesus to the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. What love, what mercy. And he witnessed the darkness, the earthquake, and now Jesus' shout of triumph from the cross. Because that's exactly what it was. This wasn't a cry of defeat. It was a shout of triumph. And Mark tells us, when he saw this, the way Jesus breathed his last, this man said, truly, this man was the Son of God. He is shaken to his senses. He makes the most incredible confession. And this confession is the climax of Mark's gospel. Because this is the whole point why Mark's writing. Mark chapter 1, verse 1, what does it say? The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's why Mark's writing. He wants you to know who this is. He's the Christ. He's a king. He's the Son of God. And to this point, Mark doesn't report any human being in his gospel coming forward with this realization, not until now. And you know what's neat? It doesn't come from any Jew. It doesn't come from one who is familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. It doesn't come from one of Jesus' disciples. It comes from the most unlikely, most unimaginable candidate. And it's the most incredible confession. It's this. This man truly was the son of God. What he was saying, this centurion, in effect, was this man, Jesus, is everything he claimed to be. He's everything he claimed to be. We know from Luke's gospel, we're told he even began praising God. This man came to faith in Christ. Church history would also report that to us. So with this realization, then, it's clear. Mark is not reporting to us the defeat of Jesus on the cross. He's reporting to us the triumph of the crucified king. Mark wants you to know Jesus triumphed at the cross. And we've seen that at the cross, Jesus satisfied sin's penalty. He fulfilled God's plan. That's why, like Paul said, we should boast in nothing except in the cross of Christ our Lord, Galatians 6.14. But why? What exactly does this mean for us, this cross of Christ? Well, in closing, two things. The cross of Christ is our only hope of salvation. Do you see that? If you were to stand before God right now and he were to ask you, why should I let you into heaven? Would you tell him, well, I'm sorry for my sins. Or I'm a good person. Or I'm better than the next guy. Any of those answers would indicate you are terribly mistaken. You're terribly mistaken about the nature of God and the nature of your sin. When we stand before God, we're not going to be judged by anyone but God. You're not going to appear before God in numbers with somebody else to point to. You will be judged by the bar of heaven. And let me tell you why that's scary. Because God is set apart from sin. God is holy. And God is a God of love, but he loves justice. And you don't want the justice of God. You need his mercy. 
We are sinners who have fallen short of God's lawful demands. Who do we think we are that by works we can climb to heaven? As if on some ladder of works. Did you know that Jesus is the ladder that Jacob saw? He is the ladder on which the angels of God are ascending and descending up and down. Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, the life. He's the only bridge that leads to heaven. He's the door. He's the one through which we have access. You can't climb over the wall, Jesus says. You've got to go through the door. Jesus, cross, opens a way where there was no way. So the only correct answer as to why God should allow any sinner into heaven is because Jesus satisfied sin's penalty for me. He completed the laws. He fulfilled the laws, righteous demands on my behalf. He is my righteousness. He is my hope of salvation. The hymn writer said it well when he said, I need no other argument. I need no other plea. It is enough that Jesus died and that he died for me. That is faith in Christ. So the good news of the gospel, do you see it? Do you see how wonderful it is? It's not based on your performance of what you've done or where you've come from. It's based in Christ. Religion says, do, do, do. Jesus says, done. Will you believe on Christ? The cross of Christ is our hope, the only hope we have of salvation. But the cross of Christ also, just in closing, is our sure triumph. It's our sure hope of triumph. You see, for believers, Jesus' triumph ought to encourage us that triumph is possible in the midst of incredible, darkest, deepest suffering. And maybe there's a believer here and you're going through an incredibly difficult time and doubts are overwhelming you. And you need to look to the cross because what is true of Jesus on the cross is by analogy also true of the Christian life. It's true of your life. Paul said that thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ because Jesus could triumph on the cross. His triumph is your triumph if you know him. If your faith is in him, he'll bring you through it. He will give you victory in the midst of your darkness, in the midst of your defeat. Keep your eye on him. And we will all be compelled to confess with the centurion, truly this man, this man Jesus, He's everything he claimed to be. He is the king. He's the son of God. Let's pray.